could farm a little bit less and preach some more. And so he moved to Scott County, and he began to preach and was kind of connected with a couple of different churches. And the, the, the one church was Pleasant Grove church, Baptist Church, Manchester, which became Manchester Baptist Church. And so the church had just formed, and he was pastoring and preaching both here and he was preaching in Winchester. I'd love to find out like what property he owned because eventually he sold it and moved away. But, but he, uh, he was, uh, so he, anyway, so he moves here and he starts preaching. And then, uh, and forgive me, there are kids in the room, so I'm going to say a few details that some of you go, may go, hey, I know this. Or it may be for somebody like me who didn't know all these details. But his, the, the Black Hawk War was about to start. It's around 1831. The Black Hawk War was about to start, and his son was going to sign up to go in the military. And so he went, they, went, they rode over to Winchester, and his son signed up to go and fight. And when he was getting back on his horse, a gun in the blacksmith shop went off and shot him in the foot, which is a big deal for a farmer because it took him 16 months, and he couldn't farm. And it, I think it was 16 months, he said, and the, uh, there were bone, fra- bone fragments came out of his foot. And so here he is, a lame farmer who can't really farm anymore, and he's wondering, what am I going to do? And so, uh, he, then, so he has to take out a loan, and this is kind of, this is how he ends up here at Manchester and why this is such a big deal. So he's injured, he's like, God has called me to preach, but I have to start taking out loans at 20% interest to try and provide for my family to put food on the table. And so he's like, God, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I can't really preach because I wasn't even preaching for a living at the time. And now I can't even farm. And so he's preaching for Winchester and he's preaching here in Manchester. And, a, um, and then he, uh, there's a... a there begins to be a big controversy both in our church and in the other churches around us because the churches, almost every church in the area, starts taking a position where they are anti-mission, which we would go, what in the world? Anti-mission means that they were totally against mission societies, they were against Sunday school, they were against temperance societies, they were against Bible societies, and they were like, and they did it kind of for two reasons. One, they thought the church is the only thing that God has, but also they thought, some people are children of the devil, and they can't be saved, so we shouldn't do missions to them. And other people are children of God, and they're the only ones that matter. And so it became something that was spreading through all of the churches in the area. Like it, was, it was a teaching that, uh, that was, really, was dividing churches, but really churches were all headed in one direction, saying, nope, missions is pointless. We shouldn't do missions. And here he is standing there going, no. Like, the gospel calls us to go and preach the gospel to all nations, and so he's preaching here in Manchester, and, but he's also not making a living. And so one of another Baptist leader, pastor, came by, saw him, you know, unable to work, unable to provide for his family. And he, they gave him a little bit of money to help him pay his debts. And they said, if we get you an appointment as a missionary, will you be able to keep preaching? And he was like, yes, that would, that would be God providing for me. And so he's so excited because he was like, God called me to preach. Right now, I'm about to have to sell my farm because I can't farm it and I can't provide for my family. What are we going to do? 
And so they said, okay, we'll give you $100. We'll, we'll write and we'll get you $100 a year if that'll allow you to keep preaching in Manchester, preaching in Winchester, and preaching in other areas around. And then the church got wind of it and said, you, cannot, you have got to receive that money. Somebody said, we can't, let, we can't make, let other churches know our pastor is a missionary. And so they made him return the $100. And the mission society said, no, we're giving that to you anyway. And he tried, they said, no, you have to return it. And so, he's, uh, <laughs> so he returned the money. They, the mission society said, no, we're giving you this money. We want you to do this work. And so he was like, okay, this is God's way of providing. I'm not going to tell the church. I'll just keep it on the side. I just don't have to tell them. The church wasn't paying him anything. And so he's like, I'll just keep this money here on the side. And they, um, and so the church got wind of it. And they called a business meeting. And they said, you have to return that money and you have to apologize or else we're going to put you out of the church. And he, he said, he said, can you, I actually forgot exactly what he asked them, but he said, I can't do that. And they said, okay, we're going to give you a month and we're going to send two deacons to try and persuade you. And so they, they adjourned the business meeting and he goes back to his farm and later that month, the, the two deacons came to him and he was he knew these deacons because they had both come they had all come from Kentucky together and the deacons were like you have got to stop this we cannot let our church be known as having a missionary pastor and so and so he looked at him and he said you guys have known me you knew me before I became a Christian you knew what I was like in Kentucky and he goes you know how long I have been supporting missions you know how long I have spoken in Sunday schools you know how long I've been speaking about what Adam and Adoniram and Ann Judson are doing in Burma. So for those of you that don't know, Adoniram Judson was the first Baptist missionary from the United States. And so even when he was still there in Burma doing his missions, the pastor of our church had been speaking about and encouraging that missions being done there. And so he's like, you know that I had been supporting that and have been calling for that. And then he said, let me take you to Scripture. And he took the deacons and he, and he showed them how Jesus said, uh, the Father sent me, and I have come to do his work. And he said, Jesus was the first missionary, and I'm following him. And so the deacons thought for a minute, and they said, you are right, and we're wrong. So they went to the business meeting, and they stood up in the business meeting, and they said, the, the church was kind of expecting to hear, we've persuaded him to give back the money, or we're going to put him out. And the deacons stood up and they said, we are wrong, and he's right. He's persuaded us that, that the missionary position is the right position. The church is doing missions is the right thing for us to do. And so in that moment, the whole church, there were two guys that voted against this. Because they just, they, and there, were, there was, uh, I think one of, both of them left the church and ended up in either not you know, going to any church at all or ended up in a different group or something. But the whole church was persuaded in that one moment, you know what, the missions position is right. And so we are going to support missions, and we're going to keep doing this. And we'll take a pastor that's a missionary if that's what it takes. So then the church ended up paying a cost for that because the other churches in the Morgan Association were like, we can't have you guys wanting to do missions in our association. And so our church paid the price of being put out of that. And so then... Uh, 
And he had some other, some other things happen there with his church that he was uh, preaching at quarter time there in Winchester. But ultimately, Jacob Bauer and um, another man named Haycraft, who was saved in our church early on, uh, called to ministry, the, and other representatives for our church were at some of the very first and the very first Baptist meetings in Illinois Baptist history. Because we took the position, missions is right, we're going to follow Jesus, and we don't care what people say is right, we want to follow what the Bible has to say. And so I saw that story, and I thought of it, and I was like, hey, let me share that with the church, and I wanted to share with you a few details I think we take from that. One, I, I told you history sometimes is a warning for us. The churches all throughout our area, but really all throughout Illinois, were taken over by a teaching that we would go, what are you talking about? Where does this teaching come from? And the reason is because they were taking something that sounded spiritual, but wasn't biblical. And so the warning for us is to say, God, help us hold to the Bible the way that Jacob Bauer held to the Bible and the way that those deacons and the church did, even at great cost to themselves and to their relationships. And so... Anyway, that's, that's a warning, but uh, the other the two things I take away from it, one is the, I think there's a call for us to be like Jacob Bauer, regularly opening God's word and saying, God, show us wonderful things in your law. You know, we know it, and we've read it, and we've studied it, but God, keep showing us wonderful things in your law. And then ultimately, the inspiration to say, you know what, we are going to keep doing missions the way that we did way back when our church was still named Pleasant Grove, and we, our pastor had to pay a cost, and our, um, and our church had to pay the cost of being one of the few churches that says, we are going to keep doing missions, because Jesus was a missionary, and so we're going to be missionaries too. So that is, the, that is a story that I think that for me helps me go, yes, I get to pastor the same church that Jacob Bauer pastored, and by God's grace, we will hold to the Bible, and we will keep doing that. Ultimately, he, before he died, in the 25 years he was pastoring in Illinois, and I think he did some in Missouri as well, like St. Louis area, but he helped plant 12 churches and ordain 14 pastors in those 25 years. And so, I mean, un until, I, until I uncovered this and saw this in this book, it's just kind of a little-known chapter, but now I'm like, oh, what a hero, a guy that take a bundle of sticks and say, hey, I want to be a student of the Bible, and then we'll hold to the Bible and do missions together. Sound good? All right. Go ahead and, go ahead and open your Bible. Last week when I was, we were sick, I turned on a sermon, and it, I read the summary beforehand, and it was awesome. And then we listened to the sermon, and it was still good, but it was about one word. I'm not doing that to you tonight, okay? <laughs> it was a 50-minute sermon on one word. Tonight, go ahead and turn with me to first, uh, Second Peter. We've been walk, we walked through First Peter. Second Peter is the last letter that Peter wrote. Seems like he wrote it while he was in prison in Rome, about to be martyred. We don't know for sure how he was killed, but the story that has been handed down through church history is that Peter said, I'm not worthy to die like Jesus, so turn my cross upside down. And so the story that, so Peter is in prison, and this is his last letter to the church. He says in the letter, this is my second letter to you, so it's probably to the same churches in Turkey. Tonight we're going to be looking at 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
I'll start in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, as we open your word tonight, we pray that you would show us wonderful things in your law. You have been doing that for thousands of years for your church. You've been doing that for hundreds of years for our church, and we pray that you would do that again for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Here, Peter, at the very end, he's staring at death. He's in prison right now. Peter as of at the introduces this letter and what I want you what I want to show you tonight is that Peter is calling to us and telling us that Jesus ties everything together. Jesus is the source of every good thing and so even in that dungeon Peter even in martyrdom even in persecution Peter is wrapped up in Jesus and calling us to do the same thing first I want to show you that that Peter tells us that your identity comes from Jesus like his look at verse 1 Peter's introduction there's a million things he could have said but he says Peter Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ Peter is the nickname that Jesus gave to, to uh, Simon. Peter means rock. On this rock, which is really the, 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 the rock of Peter's um, acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, as Messiah. But, uh, but Jesus gives him the nickname rock. And so, but Peter's identity is Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think he, Peter is wrapping up everything in his life around Jesus. To the very end, he is all about Jesus. And it is a call to you and I to begin to model that in our own lives. So that when somebody says, who are you and who's your family and what's your job? The, the thought that comes to our mind is, is actually, I belong to Jesus. I think of the identities that we can take on and the ways that we think about ourselves. And this week I was thinking about Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech. I, some of you are sports fans. Some of you don't care. <laughs> Michael Jordan was the athlete of my time. Like, nobody compared to Michael Jordan. Greater than anybody else. Everybody wanted to be like him. They wanted to dress like him. The ads were be like Mike. And when it came time to induct him into the Hall of Fame, some of you remember his, whole, his speech. He was reciting everybody that ever didn't believe in him or slighted him. The greatest basketball, the acknowledged greatest basketball player ever was still consumed by the basketball coach that cut him in middle school or high school and said, you're not good enough. To that kind of thing, I want to say, let it go. Like, like, I, I'm not sure anybody's ever going to have a 72-10 basketball season like you had with the Bulls. I'm not sure anybody's ever going to be able to do what you did and equal you, but your identity has been wrapped up in people not believing you. That is the thing that rings in his ears. What I think Peter shows us here is that when Peter gets to the Hall of Fame, the thing that is ringing in his ears is, I know Jesus. His description of himself is, I get to serve Jesus. 
and I've been sent by Jesus. This, the, I don't, the, Peter and the other disciples never got over Jesus. Not their leadership in the church, not their success in church planting. There is nothing in their lives that compared with Jesus. And I think that is a model for us to say my identity and everything in my life should be wrapped up in the fact that I've met Jesus. Second thing we see in this passage is that our status comes from Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 1. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. It's normal to start a letter with, who am I writing to? But here he, does not, he doesn't describe where they're at, like he did in the first letter in Turkey. He doesn't say, those of you who live in this city, those of you who have done this, those of you who are at this church. He, he identifies them and says, the thing that's distinguishing about them is you have been given the same faith. You have been given a faith that is just as precious as ours. You have equal standing with me in the church, Peter says, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because you have behaved, not because you've planted enough churches, not because you've written enough letters, given enough money, served enough VBSs. You have been given a status just like mine through the righteousness of Jesus. I think those are the words of a, of a disciple who has walked with Jesus and has betrayed him and been restored. And he's like, I didn't do anything to deserve being included in God's disciples. And yet he did it anyway. And he says, and so you get to receive a, the, a faith with the same status as mine. It is guaranteed by Jesus Christ. There's a detail to notice here. This is one of the clearest signs in the Bible. I mean, there's a lot, and it's pretty clear. But this is one of the clearest signs in the Bible of Jesus' divinity. So anytime somebody, like a Jehovah's Witness or somebody else, says Jesus isn't God, <coughs> this verse right here, verse 1, where he says, uh, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, these two words are, are totally equal here. God and Savior, he says, is Jesus Christ. Not two separate things. This is one person, Jesus and so he is saying, your status in the kingdom of God is guaranteed by God himself, Jesus Christ. Which means that nobody has better status in the church, in the kingdom of God, than you do. No deacon, no pastor, no missionary, nobody has a higher status in the kingdom of God. Not somebody who gets to teach Sunday school, not somebody who gets to speak to thousands and thousands of crowds. Billy Graham has nothing on those who have been included because of the righteousness of Jesus. Do any of you remember the Flintstone TV show? I, I, I don't think it was like new when I was a kid, but it was new enough that that was one of the TV shows I grew up watching. And there was a great, there was a great Flintstone movie, not the real person one that came out in theaters. There was, there was a Flintstones spy mystery. I don't know if you... So the, the music sounds kind of like the Beatles, and it's got this really like a 60s vibe to the movie. So maybe it was a 1960s movie, and we just watched it. I don't know. But the, the Flintstones had this movie where they're, and I like love it. I haven't seen it in years and years, but I talk about it regularly at the house. I'm like, oh yeah, the Flintstones. Well, in this movie, they need to fly. 
And when they go flying, they have to, they, their planes at the time, or I'm sorry, in this show, as if it's real, um, the plane was a big, like, stork-like bird. And so they would, like, they have to climb up a ladder, and the, they kind of play it for laughs because he walks through first class, which is up near the neck of the bird, and then they, like, go into, like, uh, like regular, and they just, he just has to keep going. And then finally, he gets back, and then he takes a right turn onto the wing because he's got to go down to, like, an even lower class. And so he ends up in, like, the very farthest tip of the bird's wing in, like, the lowest class of the airplane. And I just remember, like, it was like a during the flight, it's just a miserable experience to be in the lowest class. And so I always growing up had this image that like planes have like classes, like, and you want to be in the good class. And then I became an adult and I was like, there's really two. And I've never even dreamed of being in the first class. See, but I was like, oh, airplanes, there's like a status thing going here. And you don't want to be in the, the, the lower class because they'll like put you out on the wing. And I was thinking of that this week because Peter, right here in his introduction, is saying, there is no wing class in the kingdom of God. No, and there's no first class. All of us get the seat that Jesus gives. All of us who are in the, have the righteousness of Christ have a faith of the same class and quality as Peter, James, and John. We're not going to get to heaven and there's the, the, the great seats and then there's the our seats. There's the good houses in the good neighborhood, and then there's ours. Peter says, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. And so it is a call to you and I to get wrapped up in Jesus and say, my identity comes from Jesus, and my status in the kingdom doesn't come from how I parented or how I performed this week, how I behaved this week. My status comes from Jesus. And finally, this passage calls to us to say that, the, that your identity comes from Jesus, your status comes from Jesus, and grace and peace grow as you know Jesus. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So here, Peter is giving hope to every disciple and saying, I want grace and peace for you. And that grace and peace is available to you. Not if you go and serve in the darkest jungle of Brazil. Not if you give everything that you have. Grace and peace are not yours if you behave a little bit better. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So that as you grow in your knowledge of God and of Jesus, grace and peace are available. You don't have to leave Manchester or Scott County for there to be grace and peace. Maybe your home life is a wreck. Maybe your relationships are just falling to pieces. Maybe your life has been miserable or your memories haunt you. Peter says grace and peace are available. Whatever your circumstances, you have grace and peace available to you. I have grace and peace available to us as we know and see Jesus as he is. I, you've pro, you probably know, or because of all my stories, you probably get the idea that I like doing things and accomplishing things. 
I think I've shared a few details about that before. That sometimes my whole life can get consumed with the index cards that I've written. These are the things that I need to do today or this week. Some of you are nodding, and you go, yeah, it's a scorecard, and I need to do things, and I, I measure, oh, look at what I accomplished. Look, I built this shelf. Isn't it great? Look, I, I redid this room and cleaned it up. Doesn't it look good? That's actually never true of me. <laughs> I don't say that one. Um, but some of you are going to be like that. You're going to say, oh, I, look at how clean the bathroom is. Look at how many things that I did this week. Look at all of the things that I have accomplished. Because I'm like that, when I read Scripture, I often want to find the practical bit. I, I want to find, I want to go to one of the New Testament letters that has like commands in it. I want, I want to go to something like something active for me to do. And so if I'm honest, sometimes when I go to the Gospels, it can feel like, but what do I do? Like, what do I do? It's a story about what Jesus has done. And so sometimes, quite honestly, it gets, I've told Emma this before, it gets kind of like unsteady, like, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, this year I, I was reading John Owen's, or an abrid, like a shortened version of John Owen's The Glory of Christ. I've shared a quote from it before. But in it, he just makes the point, one of the points that kind of stuck with me is that the point of the Gospels is not simply, let me add something to your to-do list, but look at Jesus. Just look at how wonderful Jesus is. Look at his glory. Look on his face. And so I, as I read this passage and I see verse 2 that says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. I go, oh. So it's doing something when we go to Matthew and we gaze on Christ and we just gaze on him and look at him. And see him and say, this is what he's like. Can you believe it? There, and there's hope in that for me and for you, I think, that we can be changed not just as we learn more rules, not as just we believe all the right things and get everything in the right order, but also as we just look at Jesus. And we get to know what his character is like, get to know what he loves. As we begin to be, we will begin to be transformed with grace and peace as we look on Jesus. So this passage calls to you and I, very beginning of 2 Peter, where Peter could have told us about the bad things that happened to him that day and that week. Peter could have said, look, this is what it's like in prison. But instead, he, Peter is like wrapped up and saying, Jesus ties everything together. Jesus is the source of every good thing. Look at him, Peter says. The disciples, they never got over Jesus. They saw that he was the source of everything, and they pressed on in everything in their life, whether it was John or James, Peter, Paul. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to know Jesus, and they wanted people to know Jesus. And so may it be true of us too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to the need of our heart, that we need to see Jesus. And so I pray that, this, that tonight and this week that we would look on Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.